Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. COVID-19 has left an indelible mark on many industries in Canada and around the world, but perhaps none quite like retail. In his new report, Shopper's Choice, the Evolution of Retailing in the Digital Age, author Daniel Schwannen examines the rise of e-commerce. While e-commerce pioneers may have disrupted the traditional brick-and-mortar players, the Amazon.coms of the world are now themselves facing growing competition from retailers who have evolved from bricks and mortar to clicks and bricks by adapting new technologies to empower direct-to-consumer capabilities. Joining Schwannin and me to review the report is Canadian retail analyst and author of the book Retail Before, During and After COVID-19, Bruce Winder. We began by discussing the blurring and possible erasing of the line between e-tail and retail. Oh, it's not been erased. It's just offering different types of uh, convenience for uh, for consumers and maybe challenges for businesses. Some uh, come at it from the digital side originally, some more recent uh, businesses and now they find that uh, consumers want that delivery that physical aspect and and certainly as we know uh, the, the the bricks and mortar uh, stores uh, have also discovered that consumer like to engage in uh, e-commerce and digital shopping and a mix of uh, of both and they like that con- convenience and it's the mix that's actually been uh, the big revelation of the pandemic <laughs> you know people saying oh well uh, yeah I'll order online but even if it's in the middle of winter, I'll just go and pick it up myself. Um, and you know that's been that's been a bit of a re- revelation and a surprise. And uh, and uh, but the bottom line is that it's more convenience and options for consumers. Was Click and Collect a surprise to you, Bruce? It was a little bit because I mean, Click and Collect came out, call it you know three to five years ago, started to get big at places like Walmart and other places. And uh, I was surprised that it uh, got as big as it did during the pandemic and post-pandemic, not because of the uh, pandemic and the impact, you know, from a germ standpoint, but just I thought people would be more apt to say, no, just deliver it to my house. But uh, a lot of people got in their cars and drove to the stores and did curbside pickup, which was a big savior for a lot of brick and mortar retailers. But does Click and Collect survive post-pandemic? And if so, what do you expect it to represent as a percentage of overall retail sales? I think it's going to survive post-pandemic. I think it's going to be one of many channels, uh, as Daniel mentioned, that is available to the consumer. Uh, Will it go down a little bit? It may. But it's also introduced a new level of convenience. And let's face it, people are getting busier uh, with uh, all kinds of jobs and side hustles and gigs. And uh, Click and Collect offers a major uh, convenience, I think, for people. So you'll probably see it kick around and and uh, do pretty well, even post-pandemic. You know, we've seen e-commerce, e-retail uh, drop uh, very obviously for obvious reasons from its uh, uh, heights during the the lockdown, right? So from from about ten percent of uh, sales for Canadian-based retailers to now more like six or seven percent. And that's quite normal. And so what we've seen uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, of course, as Bruce mentioned, uh, e-commerce really was trending up in all in all its form uh, prior to that. Then there was quite naturally a big jump. Uh, it was a lifeline. Uh, that's Those are the words of Statistics Canada for uh, for Canadian retailers uh, during the pandemic. But now it's uh, it's back to its upward trend from pre pre-pandemic. Uh, but way off its uh, its its uh, its highs, and uh, and so it's that versati- versatility that I think uh, consumers have uh, come to appreciate, and will want to continue to enjoy uh, in the future, depending on 
their their circumstances and what they're looking for. I'm thinking about it more from the other side of the equation. Sure, it introduced a new level of convenience for the consumer, but what a pain in the butt it must have been for most retailers to develop an entire new way of getting the product out the door. And if it's only ever going to be a small fraction of the overall retail sales that a brick and mortar store has, I, I could see a Loblaw, for example, continuing to do click and collect. But would a Home Depot really want to continue to put the energy and effort into it? They'll look at what customers want. And uh, I mean, we're, we're in a point now in retail, and we've been in this point for the last decade or so in Canada, where retailers have been forced to develop all kinds of new capabilities that don't make money yet. So, you know, it used to be easy. You just ship stuff from a supplier to a warehouse to a store, you put it on the shelf, customer comes in and buy it. Now you've got e-commerce, which has been developing for a while, right? That requires a new capability. Click and collect. Um, some people have kiosks, you know, some people have other type of arrangements set up through uh, malls and things. So I think we're at a stage where a lot of retailers are kind of forced from the customer to build out these capabilities that may or may not pay back yet, uh, but might pay back later. So there's sort of a longer payback period for some of these things. And if they don't do it, they risk looking really bad and alienating some of the up and coming uh, consumers, you know, which could be the Generation Z or the Alpha down the road or, you know, even the millennials now. So it's a bit of a funny time as it relates to that. It's true that every time there's a new technology, new competitors, uh, new capabilities, it's a pain in the neck for, uh, for those that have been used to getting their, their customers, in this case, a certain way, just to take the trouble of going to the store, etc. Uh, it does mean, it doesn't mean that you can't adapt or even thrive uh, under the, the new regime. And we see a lot of traditional uh, retailers saying, hey, I can get into this uh, this game too. I can collect data from my uh, uh, consumers or customers uh, as well and offer them, uh, um, you know, and it, maybe this will help with my inventory strategy. This will help, you know, lower my costs in a certain way as well. And so uh, what we are seeing is in fact, exactly that. A lot of uh, traditional retailers uh, actually starting to thrive uh, with uh, the digital capabilities uh, that have been showcased by Amazons and, and others. Uh, you know, I agree that for the smaller uh, retailer, even the, the smaller manufacturer or uh, trying to get to their, uh, to their consumers, it's a, it's a different game. Uh, but then you have uh, uh, Canadian firms offering platforms uh, that actually allow these smaller uh, players to get more directly uh, to their uh, to their uh, consumers as well by you know if, if if you like through a economy of scale and economy of scope uh, effect so you don't try to do it yourself but you're doing it through a common platform if you will so um, uh, it's adaptation for sure but honestly that's that's been the challenge of of running a business since time immemorial. I think that's a good point that Daniel makes. If so I can just jump in. And the difference, I think, now with technology is that it enables small business. So you look at everyone from Shopify to Amazon to Lightspeed, and the list goes on and on. These platforms have enabled small business to get in the game quicker, easier, and cheaper. So they've sort of taken away some of those barriers to entry that used to be there. Um, so, so that's a bit of a difference now is it's more of a 
sort of a uh, symbiotic type relationship between these big companies and small companies. And you're seeing that as, as a bit of a difference from maybe competition 20, 30 years ago when it was big companies beating up small companies and, you know, it's sort of a zero sum game. Yeah, to, to quote Michael Scott from The Office, oh, how the turntables. Daniel, <laughs> you note that e-commerce pioneers disrupted the established bricks and mortar players, but now they're facing growing competition from those they disrupted. That's exactly right. Actually, you see that in a number of sectors uh, as well. Uh, so, uh, and, and, and we, we, we could easily list them, uh, whether it's the culture sector or the, the you know, the, the taxi sector, uh, you know, there's a lot of established players that say, hey, now I'm going to offer this streaming service or I'm going to offer this new convenience or I'm going to become a data-driven uh, a, a business. I can do that too. Uh, and so what I do see is, in fact, yes, this kind of a, a competition. You had early, of course, innovators, uh, 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 people that based their entire business model on the, on the technology. The technology is available. You know, the you, uh, others, more traditional players, are, are adapting their business practices to that. So, indeed, you know, that's that's that that's what I see, and that's one of the things that you know uh, we mentioned in our paper. It's in a lot of these lines of businesses, at, at least, and certainly in retail. Uh, it, it's really artificial to say, well, we have a digital retail market, right, dominated by player X, Y, or Z, or not dominated because others are moving in quickly, versus a, a brick and mortar market. It's it's the same. It's the same consumer. You know the saying: "There's only one taxpayer. There's only there's only one consumer," and um, and 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 so it's the same business really. Mm-hmm. It just conducted uh, in a different manner than it was 20 years ago by almost everybody now. I like that part of your report, Daniel, when I read it, is the fact that you've sort of looked at this holistically as a large ecosystem and you haven't said, well, you know, e-commerce is separate than bricks. It's a whole new business. It's all together. I mean, go back, way back 100 years ago when Sears was around and they had a catalog and then later they had a phone operation and then they had some stores and some dealer stores and then they had a website and then they went kaboom. But before that, you know, they were seeing the world that way. They were an early version of Amazon, right? And they saw their customer as, no, no, we don't see it these different channels and different businesses. We see one customer and we're going to serve them the way they want to be served, depending on where they live and what they're looking for. And so I think that's astute that we now need to look at retail, you know, as retail and understand that e-commerce is part of it, but so is kiosks and vending machines and mail order and and you know phone in your order and go to a store and go to a partner store. You know, it's all, it's all kind of part of one giant market. We're seeing an evolution of that giant market as well. You know, Daniel, you point out in your piece that we're seeing a disconnect in interests of the marketplace owners like your Amazons, et cetera, and the marketplace participants who are leveraging those platforms to sell. The important thing, and actually this is a a question for, for example, competition authorities is, you know, uh, do the the smaller players, the retailers and manufacturers that are trying to uh, reach reach customers, um, uh, importers that are trying to reach domestic customers, do they have a choice? So that's really that's really the question. It's not just the consumer having a choice, but when you're a business and you're trying to sell, do you have a choice? And and the contention is that um, uh, that yes. And in fact, we've seen in the U.S., for example, uh, even if we are talking about just e-commerce, uh, 
uh, others, uh, the Walmarts and the, the, the targets of this world, catching up. They're far behind, <laughs> but you know, their their uh, the, the growth in 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 their e-commerce uh, volume uh, is uh, is faster than that of Amazon's, for example, in in the recent couple of years. So. Yes, there's a lot of competition. There's a lot of people looking for not just customers, retail customers, but sellers. Exactly. And they want to attract them to their platform. And there's no long-term gain uh, in trying to exploit your sellers either, as long as they have a choice uh, of, of uh, platforms or marketplaces, or indeed ways of reaching their customers directly online now, uh, which, uh, a lot, uh, which many choose to do. I think there is a pretty big choice now, too, because if you look at one of the trends you see in retail, Daniel, you mentioned it, is a lot of companies um, are offering marketplace services now. So if you're at Best Buy, and Best Buy was one of the first ones to do this years ago, like a decade ago, where they said, yeah, we've got our products, we'll sell you through our stores and through our own e-commerce, but we'll open up our own marketplace so third-party vendors can sell. I mean, you've got everyone from Hudson's Bay into the game, Loblaws in the game, Best Buy in the game, Amazon's in the game, you know, eBay's a little bit different. But you have a lot of companies now, surprising companies, who have decided to offer that as a service to their customers, but also as an incremental revenue stream to connect these maybe small and medium-sized firms to consumers. So then why should we be concerned, or why should competition authorities be concerned if we have so many options for sellers today? It's the job of competition authorities to be concerned. And so if they, if they uh, about competition, and, and uh, that's a good thing. That's a good thing for, for Canada. And uh, what we're, uh, they may hear complaints. They may hear of things that happen from, uh, from companies that feel uh, that they're not getting a fair deal literally from uh, from the large marketplaces, for example, right? Uh, uh, there have been cases in other countries where uh, some of these marketplaces have been accused of, uh, for example, uh, uh, putting certain products in front of consumers to the preference of others. And that's a very, you know, that's a no-no, if you will, right? Uh, if, you're, if you're presenting yourself as a neutral, a, a player or a neutral uh, marketplace uh, to say, well, I'm going to put myself first in front of my suppliers or, or uh, 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 of other suppliers. So uh, it's very natural for competition authorities to look uh, into those uh, uh, into those um, you know accusations, frankly, by by, by some people, uh, and they should. Uh, but the real question uh, for them is whether uh, the suppliers in this case that or other retailers that may not have liked their experience uh, with with certain electronic marketplaces uh, like Amazon do they really have a case and is it really in the interest of these large marketplaces uh, to play against uh, their suppliers when these suppliers in fact writ large across the economy um, you know, or their vendors uh, have a lot of choices. And so it does come back to this question of choice. Uh, and it does come back to this question of uh, does the digital marketplace, is it really a different marketplace from the physical marketplace? And of course, our contention is very much, no, this is, uh, it's just one big marketplace with different channels, uh, literally for 
uh, for vendors, uh, retailers, producers to reach their customers. One thing I, I, I see, Daniel, just as an observation, is that I think that sometimes uh, regulators and and you know people in general look at these digital marketplaces, whether it's selling online or, or through marketplaces, as as very different from uh, brick and mortar. Now, I grew up on the brick and mortar side, right? But um, it was not uncommon. In fact, it was encouraged that when you're putting together a store, you decide with the supplier who gets an end cap, who gets at the front of the store, who gets at a certain shelf level, who gets a promotion and a flyer based on their profit contribution to you and sometimes their cooperative allowances they give you. So what I'm suggesting is that uh, the practices that have existed in the brick and mortar side for generations um, also exist in the digital world. And there's probably nothing wrong with that because um, these marketplaces are going to monetize as much as they can uh, different cooperative uh, advertising and different products that they're going to put at the front versus the back. So instead of having a store, you just have a web page. You pay to get to the top of the page. That's no different, in my opinion, anyways, from what we did when we were running brick and mortar stores and had people pay to get end caps or pay to get dump bins or pay to get promotions. Bruce, we've talked for years about the, the fact that brick and mortar stores footprint has been changing. And it was doing so, of course, well before the, the pandemic. But as the author of Retail, before, during, and after COVID-19, how does COVID-19 change physical store layout, product, and location decisions post-pandemic? Yeah, it's a great question and a pretty, pretty long answer, but I'll try to give you a short version if we can here, because we only have a few minutes. But um, definitely what's changed is there's going to be less stores. Uh, because I do think that e-commerce has been turbocharged. Yeah, it's settled down a bit, but it's going to start at a higher base and it's going to keep growing and accelerating. So you don't need as many stores. You don't need as many stores. You also will see a change in the layout of stores because some people want to get in and get out and do a pickup, a click and collect like we talked about earlier. So stores are starting to say, you know what, we're not going to make you go through our whole um, you know, racetrack of the store if you just want to come in and pick up a box. Right. No more will the milk be at the back of the store. Yeah, you know, that's retail 101, but at some point when you do that, your customers get angry. It's dangerous to put the milk at the back of the store if it means the customer is going to be disrupted and not and lose convenience. So you're seeing more retailers put the milk at the front of the store, so to speak, have the pickup locations at least toward the front to make it easier. You're also going to see um, stores change in terms of being more knowledge-based, uh, more experiential. You're either going to be a functional store or an experiential store. You're either there to, to offer a function or to discuss things, offer almost the Disneylandification of stores. Um, you're also seeing a difference in technology. So one of the things that's caught uh, some interest here for the last few years is the Amazon Go technology, what they call the Amazon Just Walk Out technology, where, and I've been to their store, or I've seen one store, and basically you just, you know, you activate an app on your phone, you put things in your shopping cart and you walk out and it just debits your account. You're going to see more of that. I also think you're going to see more touchless retail uh, because of the pandemic. Uh, it's going to take us a while to kind of get over this, even psychologically. So I'm assuming that when you walk in a store, you're not going to touch anything really, unless you touch a product. Everything's going to be tap or, you know, you're also going to see more facial recognition, um, you know, and, and you're going to see, like Daniel said, the, the continued weaving of digital and store weaving those two formats together 
so that they're almost not that different. I.e., when you walk in the store, there's going to be areas you can do some things online. You can order online. Facial recognition will be there. There's a lot of discussion about the metaverse and what's going to happen with that. That's a whole other discussion, probably overblown right now, but definitely the integration of technology. So, um, and, and I think you're going to see uh, the ability to pick up packages at a greater number of locations. I know Amazon launched a, a business called Counter, I think it's called, where they're starting to work with different retailers like Sears did where they become partner outlets, where you pick up your package at Joe's convenience store and they get a cut. So those are some of the things that come to mind. Yeah, for sure. I, uh, you know, just to reinforce Bruce's point, there's something he mentioned uh, that's really important in uh, terms of understanding the role of competition. Competition doesn't mean that actually everybody is all the time on a level playing field. <laughs> the whole idea of competition is that some people are trying to attract consumers in a different way and maybe they succeed and then they get ahead and then others catch up uh, and, and learn from that. And that's always the case uh, in a lot of sectors. Um, there's, no, there's no such thing really in a sense as pure competitive, you know, everybody is small and competing in the same way. That, that's not really uh, how progress works in, in retail or, or in any sector. Uh, and I, you know, I thought I'd mention that you know, it's not just uh, it's not just uh, and Bruce mentioned that as well. It's not just something that uh, or a phenomenon that emerged with the digital economy or the digital giants. Uh, it is something that, for example, uh, Sobeys or Loblaw have been practicing for a long time. It's like okay, well, now we are experimenting with this president's choice, for example, product. Uh, because we're tired of being dictated by the food manufacturers. That was that was then. Now it's more, hey, this really works. Now we have the market power. People like this brand. And then we're replacing what's on our shelves increasingly uh, with that or, you know, compliments for Sobeys, you know, which is their own brand. And it's a, it's a constant evolution that way. And then somebody somewhere will find something better. Uh, and it's been like that for centuries. I... I was reading Mark Carney's book, uh, Values, uh, and he was pointing out uh, from a 16th century philosopher, who, who, uh, who uh, uh, Italian philosopher, who said, you know, they're really the, 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 the lifeblood of uh, retail and business in general is data and information. Well, here we are. So it was ever thus. Before we wrap this up, I'd like to come back, Bruce, to a point you had made about the future post-pandemic of the retail environment, that they would be split into function or experience, or the disnification, as you pointed out. When we think of function, I, I know we immediately go to the general goods stores, your grocery stores, your get-in, get-out kind of scenario. And when it comes to experience, we're thinking clothing, we're thinking electronics. You know, you want to go and you want to experience what that's all about and feel a connection to the, the company or what have you. But where are some of the areas of function and experience that are coming that we're, we, we're not expecting, that we're not talking about? Well, it's a great question. I mean, and, and you know, we're going to have to see what happens. But, you know, take take an example of coffee, you know, in Starbucks, right? If you go back 30, 40, 50 years, whenever before Starbucks got big, coffee was coffee was coffee was coffee. It was very functional. You go in and you get a cup of coffee because you need to wake up or you want to chat with some friends. Uh, Starbucks, I would argue, has made coffee experiential. 
So they've taken something that's commoditized and put an environment there, a sense of community, the furniture when you walk in, the brand, the food you get, um, you know, the supply chain, the cause marketing, and they've created something more experiential and they're charging a lot more for it now. Um, I think there's an opportunity to, to do more of that. You're seeing a lot more of some of these commodities become experiential on a very niche focus. So, you know, I went to a, a mall in Toronto and I saw uh, a one vendor selling donuts for $5 a donut. Now, I don't think they had their act together yet in terms of their, their brick and mortar, but they're trying to take that. They're trying to take commodities and make them um, experiential. But you can't do it all the time because to be experiential, you have to have higher margins to fund that. And there's just a lot of products out there at the value segment, like the Dollaramas of the world, the Walmarts of the world, where they, they're going to sell a lot of low price points that don't have the margin to make it experiential. And customers don't necessarily want to be experiential there. So it's, it's going to be customer driven. You're going to see a lot of people trying a lot of things like we talked about with the metaverse and, and melding of those things. Um, but, you know, look, look for the next company to try to take something that we take for granted now. You know, an example, this, this might be a fun example, but you take it electric charging stations. Uh, I read an article this week showed how they're reimagining the, the gas station of the future. Well, the EV station of the future, it's going to be totally experiential. You're going to be able to work out. You're going to be able to watch a movie, chat with friends, do yoga, um, you know, walk around in, in a mini garden. Well, you're going to have to because it's going to take a while to charge your car. <laughs> it is. It's going to take an hour or 40 minutes. So that's an example of how, you know, it's going to be very case specific and lifestyle specific and market segment specific, depending on who you're going after. After looking into this, I think retail is a lot more exciting than I thought it was. And it's not just because of the uh, electronic uh, marketplaces, platforms, what have you. It's the whole sector that's being transformed and giving both uh, consumers and vendors a lot more choices than they had before. And uh, our research shows that this is uh, very good for consumers, for their disposable income. It's got a net market expansion effect. Uh, and it's good for the uh, for the economy in general. Thank you for for the opportunity. I think it's a very exciting uh, sector to be examining, among others that have been affected by the digital transformation. Well, Daniel, thank you to you. Thank you, Michael. And Bruce, thank you so much for your time and insight as well. Yeah, I appreciate it, Michael. Thanks for the time today, and uh, great to connect with you, Daniel, as well. Same here, Bruce. Daniel Schwanin is the Vice President of Research at the C.D. Howe Institute. Bruce Winder is a retail analyst and author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19. Still to come from a physically distant C.D. Howe Institute, February 10th, Innovation Through Collaboration, Investing in Continuous Improvement, a webinar with Bob Hamilton of Canada Revenue Agency. And on the 16th, Fair Share, the implications of a global minimum corporate tax with EY law partner Angelo Nicolakakis, Sean Porter of Finance Canada, and OP Trust VP of Tax, Sky Shapiro. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Stay safe. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. 
Thank you.